We have been duped by feminism, sexual liberation, and antidepressants. We have been told that we are powerful and free now as women, but we feel tired, wired, and bitter. We're mostly eating right, exercising, and meditating, wrangling to-do lists, and arranging playdates, and yet there's a haunting hollowness beneath the huge complaints. What if I told you that there is a huge storehouse, a reservoir of energy inside of you that has not been tapped, that you could feel light and pulsing, excited and alive in ways that a wellness lifestyle cannot deliver, that you could trust yourself, that the world could feel safe and that unexpected and expected delights could start to illuminate your path. No coach, therapist, doctor, or guru required. Just you learning to get real, present, and attentive with you. I feel like I'm here to matchmake your inner parts for the greatest love affair ever written. I want to help you learn first where you're buying eggs from the hardware store, which is the source of all pain. I want to help you master entering through the upset, which is the only spiritual practice you'll ever need and to get real comfortable putting on your villain crown, which is, in my opinion, the key to true power. And then you'll attune to your inner yes so you can live the life defined by the specific pleasure of who you are. I am so excited to announce my latest book called The Reclaimed Woman, which is available for pre-order now. So if you head to the link in show notes, you can learn more about bonuses, events, and companion offerings. And I cannot wait to see your gorgeous face on the path. I'm Dr. Kelly Brogan. You may know me as a New York Times bestselling author of a book with an exploding pill on the cover, renegade psychiatrist, pole dancer, or honorary member of the Disinformation Dozen. What can I say? I'm a born provocateur. I've spent most of my recent life exposing deceptions, connecting dots, and discovering the secret places my inner victim is still waiting to be liberated. And now I feel called to help you reclaim all of your parts, your health, your sexuality, your power, and your expression so that you can finally truly own yourself. I want to ignite in you that inner knowing and the pulsing vitality that lives beneath your disempowerment, disconnection, and resentment so that you can audaciously, courageously, and playfully alchemize your struggle into the specific pleasure of who you are. This is Reclamation Radio, a Soul Fire production. Hello, beautiful humans, and welcome to Reclamation Radio. I thought I would start off by introducing myself. And if you're here, you may already know a thing or two about me. So I thought to tell you a thing or two you may not know. And I have compiled a list of 25 ways that I have become that which I have judged because I thought that it would be a more factual narrative than whatever I might otherwise tell you about myself and my journey. And because this is a lot of what I'd like to explore in this space with you is an experience of self-ownership that actually becomes 
amusing <laughs> and enjoyable, right? Once you get through that experience of your own shame that is limiting your capacity to recollect all of the parts of yourself that are hiding in the closet. So maybe this will help you see what I'm up to. So in no particular order, I am going to share with you these 25 things. So number one is that I used to not only judge, I was actually trained to deride, dismiss, and criticize alternative medicine. And what you'll find is in this list is that sometimes I will go from one polarity to the other, like some from one extreme of perspective to the other, and then there'll be a third step. So I'll go from one to the other to another. And in this case, my relationship to health and medicine fits very neatly in the category of polarization because as a card carrying cult member of the Western conventional so-called traditional medicine. Can you believe it's called traditional medicine? As a member of that establishment, I was trained to believe that illness and symptoms and sickness are not only something to be concerned, that's one of my least favorite words, worried is another, because it's really just a way of refusing to look at what it is that you're feeling, right? So not only are you trained to be concerned about your symptoms, but you're actually trained to be afraid of your body and you are encouraged to triangulate against yourself with the system in collusion with the system, right? So I'll talk a lot about the victim triangle and this is one of the, the chief examples. And I was a very powerful match for that system because of my belief system at the time. So I thought that alternative medicine was not only silly, but I thought it was actually dangerous and that you would, would be reckless to consider something like lifestyle change or supplements or homeopathy or energy medicine when a bona fide gold standard pharmaceutical option was available. So most of you probably know that I was trained through fellowship level to specialize in prescribing to pregnant and breastfeeding women all manner of psychotropics. And that is how much I believed that this was the way out of the problem of who you are, the problem of your experience, the problem of your so-called brain chemistry, right? And your bad genes and bad luck. And about, well, let's say in 2010, I woke up through the cognitive dissonance of my own health experience. And that is a very typical story for MDs who, you know, go rogue is once we are in a position to actually interact with what the system has to offer and the very low ceiling of possibility, it doesn't feel good, right? And we venture off into the wild unknown to seek out something different, maybe something that we've heard about from, you know, a colleague or a friend of a friend of a friend. And after I was diagnosed with Hashimoto's thyroiditis, I found myself in the office of a naturopath and put my so-called illness into full remission. And that is when I became a very passionate um, advocate for functional medicine and lifestyle medicine specifically. So the ways in which you can live differently, you can choose differently, and that can impact all of the networked dynamics of your physiology, your psychology, and your emotional well-being and health. And it was only after I began to see 
the power of lifestyle change to redirect the course of one's entire life, not just your health, that I started to understand the spiritual underpinnings of the very specific symptoms, the very specific timing and your very specific narrative. You know, so this surfaced at a point in my journey where I was really at a a crossroads. Either I am going to pursue the truth, (laughs) the truth within myself and the truth without of myself, or I am going to stay asleep and go on pretending that I feel fulfilled uh, serving a system that is really just managing these women's experiences. And I obviously chose the path into the, the wild unknown for me at least. And that is where I began to understand that, you know, there's, there's more going on here. This is actually potentially not just your body speaking to your awareness, but actually your soul speaking through your body to the awareness uh, that is your consciousness. That is what health is. And how can you begin to explore and discover what it is about yourself that is here wanting to be known so at this point, my perspective is um, much more aligned with, you know, modalities like German New Medicine, where I'm interested in the psycho-spiritual interpretation of life that is being expressed through symptoms. So here I am, <laughs> somebody that I absolutely would have judged. And when I was on the, the Joe Rogan show years ago, he asked me, he said, you know, how, how would you have interacted with yourself. If you ran into yourself 10 years ago at a bar and I said, I don't know what I said, but I think I said something along the lines of, you know, I I would have wanted to dismiss, you know, and write off this newer version of me, but I think I would have had a hard time because of whatever the energetic dimension of who I became, even though I became somebody that I would have wanted to write off as a quack, there's something in there that's a little harder to dismiss because I certainly, you know, am energetically a very different uh, individual than I was when I was, you know, eating Snickers and Twizzlers and McDonald's and Popeye's and White Castle, never exercising, dyeing my hair black and taking the birth control pill for, uh, I don't know, 12 years on end. <laughs> so I was still me, but it was just like shrouded in this cloud. You can even, you know, sort of see it in, in photos. So that's number one. Number two, cats. <laughs> so I remember that I used to find cats absolutely disgusting and thought that they're like greasy fur and they're like dandruff or whatever, you know, was on their gross fur and their like slinky, creepy way of moving around was really incomprehensible. Like why anybody would want that kind of a creature in their home. And lo and behold, (laughs) um, it was in 2020 that a girlfriend of mine, Maya, she treat that she told me, she said, listen, I got a downloaded meditation. Isn't it fun having friends <laughs> and give you life advice through spiritual channels. So she got a download that I needed to get a cat for the benefit specifically of one of my daughters and the experience of unconditional love that can come through that relationship. And I just knew she was right. And so even though I still was you know, first of all, in a, in a phase of my life where I was still barely head above water, I adopted Mushu Kitty. And after that, I adopted Bitty Kitty. Okay. I'm not responsible for these names. And 
these two cats are clearly soulmates. You know, I got one off of Craigslist and one off of next door and somehow I knew to bring them together into our home and these cats completely revolutionized our lives. So not only do I love cats now, but these cats are actually like semi deities and the way that I care for them and, you know, the way that they have taken up very, very valuable real estate in my inner dimensions and those of my daughters is, can really only be explained through the satisfaction and fulfillment of a little girl part of me that was otherwise so locked in the closet that she couldn't even express her desire to have animals. And it's very funny because I found some photos of myself recently. I have very, very few photos of my childhood. And I found maybe four or five. And they were, four of them were me with cats and chickens. And right now I have six chickens, two cats, and I love them. So look at that. Number three, diet. So I have been on a diet journey. There's much more to learn about that, largely through my health reclamation protocol, Vital Mind Reset. But suffice it to say that I was a standard American diet lover as somebody who's always, you know, I've always been thin. My mentor would say that that's because I am a sympathetic dominant, my mentor, Nick Gonzalez. And I could treat myself like a garbage disposal, you know, literally eating whatever I wanted, whatever I felt like, whatever addiction, food addictions I thought to satisfy in the moment. And I drank six cups of coffee a day at the height of my medical training. And when I was diagnosed, I, it was recommended that I make modifications to my diet and specifically that I take out uh, gluten and dairy. I had a little stint as a vegetarian, which meant that I was eating pizza and drinking soda and literally like eating Cheetos. <laughs> this is not a joke. <laughs> I still find it amusing that I thought this was an option. And when I got pregnant, I started eating meat. And that meant fast food hamburgers. So my daughter will always hold this over my head whenever I cast a judgmental glance over at what she prefers to eat. She always says, well, it's my fault because of how she incubated in utero antenatally and what I was eating at the time. Because you might remember my previous bullet point that I did not wake up until postpartum. I did, and I'll mention this, um, thankfully wake up about the nature of, of birth. So I went on to become an ancestral diet advocate and a paleo mama, so to speak, and continue to advocate for many reasons for that approach to eating for those who find their way, you know, to my little corner of the world, because I have now a lot of published evidence and reason to understand why those who struggle with what is called depression or so-called ADHD or, you know, multiple chemical sensitivities, autoimmunity and allergies, why these folks uh, are stabilized on a specifically red meat containing diet. And that also worked for me, right? It was a very major component of the physiologic reclamation process for me and specifically restoring uh, blood sugar balance and nutrient density. And I'm now a couple of years into vegetarianism. So I currently eat my chicken's eggs and I eat fish and otherwise eat absolutely none of the animal foods that I once ate. And that was a spiritual evolution for me that specifically grew from caretaking 
these animals and was not a health decision and is one actually that I had a lot of apprehension about initially because of my own conditioning around the importance of, you know, particular nutrients coming through animal foods. And so my belief at this point is that, you know, the specific spiritual relationship that you have to that, which you consume is very related to the healing and resolution of your mother wound. And obviously that makes a lot of sense, right? Because this is your self-nourishment through and from the earth and a highly, highly personal process. So my advocacy publicly at this point is only for a health reclamation ritual that I know serves the outcome that is often desired. After that point, it's for you to discover, right? It's for you to intuitively relate And at this point in my life, there will be times where I am craving radishes or dates and I will literally eat them like all the time for days on end and then move on. So I would say that the intuitive eating realm has taken me from at many points in my early career, the vitriol that I would receive in my inbox and the office would because of my advocacy for animal foods from vegans and vegetarian activists was extraordinary, you know, to the point where I thought, well, there's really something deeply wrong with these people because of their anger and bitterness and their effort to persuade others, you know, how to live was really difficult to relate to. And that I have crossed over now, you know, twice and I'm on the other side, you know, not publicly necessarily advocating for, because of the reasons that I suggested, I don't believe it's my business to tell anybody what to do, but understanding you know, what it might be to sensitize um, to the sourcing of your food to such an extent that if you were to eat animal foods, you or your, you know, or your man or your family or community would be um, directly responsible for their raising and, and slaughter. So, and if that's cool with you, great. So number four, caring about cars. Okay. So some of these will be super off the cuff. So I, never understood why anybody cared about cars. I didn't understand the difference between the different brands. Why does it matter? You just get it. It goes from point A to point B. What's the big deal? I remember that my former partner at one point bought a Porsche and was understandably excited about that opportunity in his life. And I remember getting out of some establishment that we were in and going to the parking lot. And I walked over to what must've been like a Honda pilot or something like some sort of you know, very domestic brand uh, car that was the same color black. And I literally couldn't tell the difference. So fast forward to now, for the first time in my life as a single woman, adult woman, I actually spent, I think, two months researching different cars and which ones were pleasing to me and what their different attributes were and are and uh, consulting tarot readers on which car is best for me. And I am a Bronco sport gal in bronze and I am very, very, very in love with my car and it feels so good to get into it. And I never thought that I would give a shit. So here I am. Look at that. Number five, nails, heels, dresses, and hair. Okay. So this could be an entire podcast in and of itself. But as I have developed more of a relationship to my inner child parts, there are many of them. There's not just one. You'll learn over the course of this relationship that we develop through Reclamation Radio that I am a huge parts work advocate and I have met many, many, many dimensions. I mean, Lord, there must be hundreds in there of my little girl selves 
And as I have reclaimed those parts of myself, I have found myself interested in things that I thought I would never be interested in. Okay. So I was like an Adidas only sneaker wearing girl from most of my life in New York. Um, I had boy short (laughs) nails, like super, super short, never polish who would take the time to bother, you know, growing, polishing their nails. So inconvenient. So not for me. And I tamed my locks with a weekly blowout when I lived in New York, there was like a dry bar downstairs and I would go down there and flatten my hair because it was too much (laughs) to this. And at this stage in my life, you know, the bigger, the better with my hair, I enjoy its volume and I enjoy letting it. I also used to dye it uh, black for many, many years. And now I don't dye it anything. And I relate to my hair as one of my favorite parts of myself, right? Like this, I don't know, wild expression of my feminine energy. I now wear heels, not only to dance, um, but also to go out and I am learning to walk in them. It's a whole thing. <laughs> and I love the feeling. I have grown my hair, my hair, well, my hair. Yes. Well, that's an interesting detail too, is that my hair never grew below my nipples. I would say like my breasts for many, many years of my adult life. And as I entered in 2016, the gauntlet of thanks to the monogamous crucible of my relationship at the time, the gauntlet of my own dark night of the soul and personal reclamation around, you know, my relationship to my childhood, my hair grew probably, I don't know what, whatever that is, six, eight inches within one year. You can even see videos from my early career in 2014, where my hair is short and that's as much as it would grow. And something was unlocked as I began to do inner child work. And now my hair is super long and I have no other means of explaining that. So anyway, I also uh, had a dream actually several months ago where I told myself that I need to grow my nails. So I started to grow my nails, um, also inspired by my daughter who has beautiful hands and fingernails and is very, very feminine in her self-expression. And I started to grow them and now they're long and I chose to learn how to live life with long nails. And I have experienced so much delight. There's an organic nail salon near me and I experienced so much delight in choosing the color and having them feeling adorned in this way where I look at my hands and I just like want to like, I want to like giggle with how lovely I experience my own fingernails. Imagine. So that is a part of my experience of feminization. And that is another bullet point, which is my relationship to feminism itself. So let's say this is number six, which is to say that I was once a very, very belligerent, angry, bitter, rageful feminist. Actually, for most of my life, I would say that I was. And I was excited about things like the HPV vaccine when it came out, uh, which I thought was like a women's health victory. I never understood why you would want to have a natural birth when you could have an elective C-section. I took birth control for 12 years continuously so that I would not bleed and be inconvenienced by that. 
And I was very much at war with men. My understanding of feminism now, I'm actually going to be doing a episode, stay tuned for a two-part podcast on the subject, because this is probably my greatest interest at the moment is the like, wow, I had no idea this would be my truth ways in which I have changed my relationship to feminism as a concept and the surprises therein, you know, because I used to think that it was about power over and, you know, I can do what you can do bleeding kind of a relationship to mankind. (laughs) Uh, I have surprised myself by what it is that I have come to know as truth at this point in the, in the realm of embodied uh, femininity. So stay tuned for that. All right. Another one is that I would tell people what to do and I would, you know, judge people who were just like listening, just listeners, right? Like, what do you have to offer if you're just listening? And now I understand that as my immature masculine, right? That always needed the problem to be fixed. That couldn't hold whatever experience of discomfort, somebody's, you know, adversity, somebody's challenges, somebody's problems were bringing up in my system. I couldn't hold it. My masculine was that immature. And so as I have matured him within me, I understand now, first of all, that it is not my job to tell anybody what to do. It's not my job to fix anybody's problems. And it is really only interesting for somebody else to learn about my perspective if they want it. So I am am now a believer in consent-based advising of my friends. (laughs) Working on it still, by the way. So let's see. Another one is my relationship to dance and sexuality. So I will be doing an upcoming podcast on my relationship to pole dancing as a spiritual practice. However, suffice it to say that I was raised a ballerina. So I worked with a Russian ballet teacher for many years of my tweenhood and anybody who has danced ballet and plus sort of the, the collective awareness of it knows that there is a lot of beautiful, powerful feminine expression that is available through that art form. And there is a lot of rigidity and structuring, hyperstructuring, and potentially what you might call repression. So as I developed an interest in other forms of dance, like hip hop and twerk and uh, African dance and ultimately pole dancing, I evolved my relationship to the judgment that I felt around women who would do those kinds of dancing, right? And my experience that women who were what I would call like sex forward or attention seeking, that something was really wrong with them. And it's very awkward for all of us to have to look at, you know, you display your like dirty laundry of your inner trauma terrain for all of us to have to look at, like, can you please stop? And (laughs) I was actually uh, watching recently a, a video that was a BDSM scene demo. And there was a woman in it and she was, you know, nude in the video. And this was for the purpose of education and a demo. And I saw that same part that said, oh, this poor pobrecita, like this poor, this poor woman who is something is so wrong with her. Why is she doing this? And then I caught that part, right? I could relate to that part and really continue to explore how it is that I might 
project, continue to project my own discomfort with my sexuality, my embodiment, and the free choice that I have to express it, however, fulfills me onto other women. So I've certainly become in many big ways uh, that which I have formerly judged in that arena. So let's see, number nine, I used to think that if you weren't an activist, you were essentially like a degenerate. So if you weren't fighting for a cause, then what were you doing? And you were just participating in this very shallow dimension of humanity. I have nothing to say to you. I have no reason to relate to you. And let me know when you actually give a shit about our experience here. You know, and certainly now I have come to explore and teach about and write about the shadow of activism. In fact, in Vital Life Project, I will be doing an upcoming masterclass on this subject for so-called light workers and healers and change makers and activists who imagine, as I have, that we have the answer, that we know how life should be, that we know what it should look like. As I've begun to explore the shadow dimensions of that self-assertion, and relationship to reality and truth, I have come to appreciate that those who have not been captured by the sense that they know better how the world should be are actually still quite interesting people. Imagine that. And I have come to attenuate my relationship to righteous activism in a pretty significant way that I formerly would have judged. So I went from being, you know, somebody who didn't even know the relevance of activism to a righteous bitch activist for many years with my sword aloft to somebody who now has a lot of circumspection around activism as a life practice. So number 10 is that I used to think that cesarean section was the only way, as I mentioned, to have a baby, my relationship to natural birth my relationship to birth as an initiation ritual for a woman, my perspective on birth as a powerful bond between the man and the woman involved without the interlocutor of the system intermediating between the two, thankfully (laughs) evolved just in time. So I was very, very science quote unquote, science minded, uh, let's say scientism minded person uh, at the time where I was pregnant uh, with my first daughter. And I actually, because I was specialized in perinatal medicine as a psychiatrist, I was very comfortable with the medical literature, knew how to read it. And I started to research all of the medical interventions that at the time my obstetrician was, you know, making sure that I was aware of things like episiotomy and fetal monitoring, um, induction, and as I researched that, I learned that, you know, less than 30% of practiced obstetrics is based on tier one evidence. And I became very indignant. And as a recovering know-it-all, I thought, well, what does this woman know that I don't know? What is she even doing? She's wrong about this. So I actually went on with a midwife, actually I changed practices. And I went on to have a natural birth, not because I understood its role in my own self-actualization, not because I was some sort of a crunchy hippie, but because I actually researched the science and the evidence, and I knew that it was safer to have a natural birth. So I uh, went on to have a home birth at a, a birthing center birth for my first and went on to have a home birth with my second. And I really found myself wishing that I had had a woman in my life who would have suggested 
you know, that I consider home birth for my first birth, because if you don't know, and you'll hear me say this over and over again, if you don't know that something is possible, it's hard to want it. It's hard to imagine that big. I am very, very passionate about the subject of birth as the beginning of the establishment of your power dynamic with your fear and who is actually driving the car of your life as a, as a woman, as a mother, are you going to hand that over to a system that has no capacity to put your psycho-spiritual or physical best interests at the forefront of any decisions that are made? Are you going to claim your experience as a mother and a woman right at that moment <laughs> where it matters most, where that all of that dynamic complexity is established, which is in the birth experience. Not to mention that this is a built-in initiation to your own power. And if you forfeit that, you know, there will be others. I worked with hundreds of women for whom coming off of psychotropic medication served as that initiation. So there will be others. Um, however, this one is built in. So why hand it over, right? And I am very grateful, you know, that I woke up in that dimension just in time and evolved from a woman who would have judged <laughs> a home birthing woman as reckless and dangerous. Number 11, my relationship to spirituality, right? So I was a, an atheist. I was raised Christian and I became an atheist around the time of what would have been my confirmation. And I fell in love with science as a religion. And that's obviously referred to as scientism. And then in my awakening process, I discovered uh, Kundalini Yoga and all manner of what in many ways have been co-opted by the new age PSYOP, all manner of spirituality. And I became very interested in transcendental spirituality and uh, forms of meditation where I could potentially get up and out of this body, right? Like, please let me out. And of course, so many people who are attracted to spirituality are attracted to spirituality because they're suffering and they're in pain and they want a way out. That's why so many who have struggled with substance relationships find their way to Kundalini yoga, for example. It is very effective. That's why I actually teach it and incorporate it in Vital Mind Reset three minutes a day because it works <laughs> to alter your state. It works to confer a new uh, sensation within these days, my relationship to new age spirituality has evolved to the extent where I am quite allergic to spiritual bypass and what I now see as a lot of avoidant tactics, a lot of passive aggression, and a lot of suppressed shadow dynamics that end up being projected as we have seen by many spiritual so-called gurus who relate to health in the body very conditionally and who are, you know, afraid of germs and encouraging pharmaceutical interventions and masks and all the rest, because apparently death is a very bad thing <laughs> to be avoided. And your body is a very dirty thing to be cleaned up. And oops, I guess we forgot to really explore that through a spiritual lens as we come to connect ourselves to one love and oneness and all of the things, light, love, rainbows, and gumdrops. So I now uh, have a lot of regard for everybody's process and journey, and also an awareness that for me and my uh, spiritual process, inner child work, shadow work, and specifically embodiment practices have been the way to really reclaim these aspects of myself that I might even through 
uh, spiritual ego and bypass continue to project outside of myself and continue to live in the same struggle and pain dynamics that brought me to spirituality uh, to begin with. Okay. Number 12, I uh, absolutely used to call myself a low maintenance woman. I prided myself on being like kind of a bro girl and somebody that guys could like easily hang out with and who was like super chill and, you know, just like whatever goes. And in my relationships, I often consider myself to be a very low maintenance woman because I never had emotional histrionic outbursts. And I was always very cool, calm, and collected. Well, I have spent the past five years learning how to feel and express feelings. <laughs> so it turns out that the emotional part of me and maybe even the hysterical part of me was locked in the closet. And I have invited her to come on out, see the light of day, you know, have a snack at the table and begin to feel at home inside of myself. So I am only as low maintenance as my needs are met, you know, and otherwise I have needs and my awareness of them and my choices to fulfill those needs and dynamics where the fulfillment of those needs is actually available has become my lived practice of spiritual integration. So number 13 is that I used to be a very hardcore rescuer, right? So I teach a lot about as I mentioned, the victim triangle, and I used to really perceive that you were probably a bad, selfish person if you didn't go out of your way to express your loyalty to a friend through saving them from themselves. That would often be like a financial gesture on my part where I would go out of my way to help somebody financially, even though they didn't ask um, even though there was no consideration of how this might actually disable their process or impair or impede their process of self-actualization. And now I can smoke out that rescuer anytime I imagine that it is my job to help somebody, take care of somebody, or do the good thing when I have not been asked to do so. Number 14 is that I used to have a lot of trouble having <laughs> I spent a lot of my adult life smalling myself, making sure that I had good things to complain about, making sure that I would mitigate anything that others might perceive as valuable, you know, from the smallest compliment that I would say like, oh, I got it on the sale rack kind of a thing to if my house was too nice, I would make sure that people knew how much debt I was in to, to mitigate, you know, how much havingness I was perceived to be enjoying. And I remember that I had an experience of, I have a generator and there was a blackout in Miami on my street. And as the whole street went dark and my house lit up and I have like fuchsia landscape lighting and my house lit up uh, and I felt this reflex of unsafety. I felt like somebody was going to come attack me or get me. And I could see, I had a, an awareness to see like, wow, that makes absolutely no sense rationally, uh, because if anybody's going to get anybody, it's going to be the dark houses that are, you know, easy to uh, take advantage of. And that felt like one of the last gasps of this coupling of having, which of course, for many of us arises in childhood, when we learn that it's important in relation to our mothers, especially as women, that we stay small, although this does apply to men too, that we stay small and specifically smaller than her. 
And that expanding in any big way, having in any big way could bring retribution or punishment. Of course, this is the imagined dynamic. Maybe it's sometimes a literal dynamic. And that generator experience felt like one of the last moments where I was going to not stand in having this expand my nervous system capacity to hold that which I enjoy. So <laughs> the next one, number 15, is that I used to be a complaint addict. Similarly, relatedly, I would always commiserate through my victim consciousness with those in my family, with friends. And as I grow my capacity to have, I enjoy connecting to those that I love through celebration, through, you know, can you believe this is happening for me? This is extraordinary. Like, please celebrate this with me. I'm psyched about this. That is a dimension of nervous system healing that is an ongoing practice. I also, when I must complain, <laughs> I'll either ask my friends to create an intentional space for me to vent, both of us knowing that I'm not a victim, that my life circumstances are how I narrate them, and that I am always being shown that which I am unwilling to see within myself, outside of myself. If I'm unable to speak without complaining or victimhood, then I will often go silent. So I will take fasts from topics and I'll tell my, you know, my friends, I'm just not talking about this particular topic for a while. I'm just going to allow it to, you know, sort of alchemize within me in silence. All right. Number 16, I used to think that I needed a really good reason to feel how I feel. So as somebody who is, you know, I am trained as a doctor, I could have easily been a litigator <laughs> because I keep a Rolodex of reasons that I'm right at the ready for pretty much every topic from the smallest little thing to the biggest thing. And when we are raised in families that are, which is, I would say most of us, if not all of us that are predicated on rightness and goodness affording more love connection and approval, then you always want to make sure that you're not on the other end of that stiff finger pointing somewhere, right? So how can you be on the pointing end of the finger, not the pointed end? And I became really attuned to the collection of evidence around my rightness. And that began to apply to my feelings so that I imagined I needed a very good reason to feel what I felt. And that feeling what I felt was not reason enough to make a decision or a choice or to experience my own validity of something not working for me. So now these days, uh, and I will, you know, talk about this more in, in future episodes, but in these days, there are two phrases that I have at the ready all the time. One is I'm not available for that. And the other is that doesn't work for me. And those phrases began to shore up my capacity to honor my feeling of no, without actually needing a single reason, a single justification. And that self-allegiance builds trust. It builds a bridge of connection between my inner feeling uh, places, my inner child realms and my adult self. So, okay, guns. I absolutely used to believe that anybody who owned a gun was creating the conditions for them to use it, that it was like a really low vibe, bad idea to, to do so. And at this point in my life, suffice it to say that I'm not sure I could possibly trust a man, for example, who does not own and know how to readily handle a gun. 
And that also comes from some of the teachings on masculinity, wherein there is a suggestion that I happen to subscribe to that if you as a man do not know, and I'm just happen to be talking about men, but it's the clearest reflection of the evolution of my judgment. If you don't know that you can kill, if you don't have a relationship to that yang aggression within you, then you're not actually trustworthy because you're not choosing not to. And I'll just drop that one right there. Okay. Number 18. I used to believe that trauma didn't matter, even though I am psychodynamically trained uh, from a very Freudian oriented Institute where I did my training and internship and residency and fellowship. I not only apply this to myself, but also to my patients that, you know, we are essentially personalities that are born and we have experiences and some of them are good and some of them are bad. And it's kind of like, we all, you know, we all go through it. So like kind of walk it off, right? Walk it off. And because I invalidated the emotional experience of my own childhood, right? From the small to the big, I was not in a position to appreciate the ways in which our experiences actually form our personality and the ways in which every single interpretation of those experiences ripples forward into the lived life that we wake up to every single day. So the fact that I used to think that trauma didn't matter is pretty comical now that it's the primary lens that I look through as I interpret every single aspect of human behavior and experience. Number 19, I used to believe and be afraid of infections and contagion. I never even would have imagined that there was any reason to question it. And even in the earlier stages of my uh, vaccine advocacy, I very much represented scientifically the concerns about these interventions through the lens of germ theory and the ways in which these interventions would actually put you at greater risk for that which you are seeking to protect yourself from all through you know, consideration of viral contaminants and antigenic priming and all of these different concepts of the immune system as you know, a bunch of soldiers that are defending the fort kind of a thing. As I began to research the actual science that I might not have been told about, as I began to explore my own lived experience of cognitive dissonance around assumptions related to contagion and infection, I recognize that theory for what it is, first of all, theory, second of all, a very powerful mechanism of capture in the victim consciousness realm. And I gel broke myself from that way of thinking. And as I did so, I began to understand other myriad other explanations for that which we are calling infectious disease. And I was never afraid again. And it was one of the most empowering transitions that I made you know, from somebody who would have deemed who I am today, reckless, dangerous, all the things. Now I look back at myself and I feel compassion, you know, for that person who was living arrested in fear around the invisible enemy, jumping from person to person and afraid of other human bodies. So number 20, I used to think that school was really important. So anyone who is raised by second generation immigrants knows that you better get straight A's, you better go to a good school and you better get a well-paying job. <laughs> so I am very shocked that I am at a point now in my life where I 
actively discourage my children from going to school. I also am a believer that they are at a, well, first of all, they're at an age where they're expressing their sovereign impulse. And I am here to support that. So they do uh, choose to go to school. However, I very much wish that they would not do so because of the, well, first of all, I interview uh, Dana Martin in the Sovereignty Series collection, and we go deep on this subject, but there are so many ways in which I've come to understand that school is the place where you are fundamentally disconnected from your creative impulse, from your curiosity, from your soul expression, and the reclamation of that over years. I mean, now you can't stop me from learning. I literally could not be kept from learning. And if I were compelled to learn that which I am fundamentally uninterested in, I might look like somebody who has some sort of, you know, ADHD disorder or, you know, a motivational syndrome or something like that. And so the relationship, the integrity of the relationship that one can have to their own inner drive, their preferences, their interests, that's what makes us so exciting. That's what makes humankind such a glorious expression is our differing interests. We organize ourselves into this extraordinary mandala because of our preferences, our curiosity, and our interests. And school is a place where we are intentionally disconnected from that and enculturated around a hierarchical model of servitude and subservience and externalization of validation that, of course, serves the agenda quite conveniently later on. So it is my hope that my uh, children do not <laughs> attend college, for example. And that is amazing to me, you know, that I am this same person who <laughs> once thought that there was probably nothing more important than where you go to school. Okay. 21 is money. I have a lot to say on this subject, but my relationship to money has evolved from, you know, somebody who was apologizing for any money that I might earn or want to now somebody who is very deeply interested in embodying wealth consciousness and owning the fact that my acquisition of money, my experience of abundance is only ever a better thing for myself and everyone around me. And I have witnessed that, that what I do with money, the things that I want to do with millions of dollars, I have so many exciting ideas and plans <laughs> and why shouldn't I have it? You know, especially in activism, there is a strong coupling of wealth and prosperity and abundance with shame and activists should not, and of course, doctors have a similar thing often. They should not be earning money. They should not be compensated because that undermines the integrity of what it is that they're doing. Well, I'm not sure I believe that anymore because I certainly <laughs> wish that most of my, you know, truth or friends and colleagues were the ones rolling in billions because this would be a very different world experience that we would have. So I really hope everyone can work on that <laughs> and experience, you know, an expansion of their capacity to hold abundance and prosperity, because I, I certainly hope that everyone listening is in a position to grow in that way. And, you know, it's so interesting because I, I have a family member, I will say, who is a self-made multi-multi-millionaire. And I always judged that as superficial, of course, you know, oh, he's not an activist. Uh, what is he doing to contribute? <laughs> and now I just admire that so much. Like, wow, 
you created that. You did that. You attracted that. That's extraordinary. I'm really proud of you. And that shift, of course, heals also the part of me that I might otherwise project. Number 22, as I mentioned, I used to be an atheist, hardcore atheist. And then as I moved into more new age spirituality, I had an altar full of all these tchotchkes and, you know, deities and crystals. And one day I basically had the vision that I don't do well with an altar, you know, that I got rid of it. I got rid of all the things, crystals and deities and all the things. And now I just pray with my own body every day and largely to my deep self, to my inner self and inner dimensions. So that evolution, you know, from atheist to spiritualist, well, I guess I started as, you know, I was never really identified with my early teachings, but let's say atheist to spiritualist to now, you know, some sort of integration oriented human being who is in a daily practice of self-devotion so that I might be in a position to serve love and connect to others in a way that is increasingly devoid of my own unacknowledged needs. My relationship to sleep is number 23. Wow, this is, I could go on. I have dozens and dozens more. So I just handpicked <laughs> some of these. My relationship to sleep is one of the hugest shifts because I used to be a night owl and I used to love to, you know, sort of like claim those late night hours, especially as a mom. After my mentor died, I started a pre-dawn practice, a meditation practice, and I was not able to go to bed at 2, 2 a.m. and wake up at 5 a.m. That was not working for me. So I started to go to bed super early. And since then, that was many, many years ago, my bedtime is nine o'clock. I get ready for bed around 8.30. My kids know it, my friends know it. And it's, you know, I have exceptions, obviously, uh, as I have resolved my rigidity over the years. Um, however, my productivity, my clarity, my experience of my day shifted so dramatically that I am a zealot for the early bedtime. And, you know, I might've judged, well, that's sad and lame and YOLO, right? Like, why are you going to bed at nine? And now I... I'm literally famous for this particular aspect of my lifestyle and its power. Number 24 is that I used to be in the New York cult, big time judging everyone else who lived anywhere else as inferior. And New York is an extraordinary place and absolutely served my fullest expression of my masculine dimensions to a certain you know, developmental phase of my life where I was really in my, you know, sort of girl boss vibes. And I'm pretty sure that I would be quite ill if I had remained there. And so for many, many reasons in 2018, I moved to Miami. The way that my body thanked me when I moved here was the beginning of the reunion with my, my feminine and the dimension of my masculine that actually is here to attune to my needs. So that immediate maturation that occurred on many levels afforded me the conditions really to begin this deeper work uh, within myself. And I used to, of course, like who didn't judge Floridians? Right? I used to judge the culture. I used to judge the non-intellectualism. I used to judge, you know, the superficiality, right? Like the nails, hair and heels, <laughs> all the things. 
uh, probably like wearing a G-string bikini. I don't know. And now there is nowhere I would rather be. I absolutely love living here. So lastly, drum roll number 25. I'm just going to mic drop here and say that I used to believe in dinosaurs, in history as we were taught it, in evolution, and in a spinning globe solar system. And now I don't. So I hope this was amusing and entertaining. I'm super excited to have this opportunity and platform to share what is swirling around in me and for you all to get to know me as I evolve and for me to get to know you. So I am super uh, encouraging of feedback and questions and things that I might weave into what it is that I will share in my solos on Reclamation Radio. And I will also be bringing in some of the most provocative folks that I could think to interview because I love to push the envelope. So I will talk to you soon. <laughs>